Welcome to the Positive Impact Podcast, where we dive into the world of movers, shakers, and changemakers, creating a positive impact on the world. This is your host, Alexandra Black Pollock, and together we're going to tackle real issues, discovering how we can make the world a better place. This episode is brought to you by HelloFresh. Tired of the grocery store? Looking to spice up dinners? HelloFresh delivers delicious ingredients and easy recipes straight to your door. Take $40 off your first box at positiveimpactpodcast.com fresh. You'll be enjoying cooking again in no time. Today, I'm so excited to dive into the tech space with the first of two Impact Engine portfolio companies. Joining us is Daniel Yu, innovative founder of ReliefWatch. This cloud-based management system allows clinics all over the world to manage inventory by using their flip phone. In the words of Fast Company, it is a clever system for a dumb phone. Today, ReliefWatch is helping medical clinics in rural areas all over the world manage their inventory. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure to be here. And I have to say, I am extremely grateful. This is your second interview with the Positive Impact Podcast. But unfortunately, me, being incredibly tech savvy, lost the actual audio file. So grateful that you are here to really champion this conversation again. (laughs) Yeah, glad to be here again. (laughs) Which, you know, is not at all humbling because, you know, you run a tech startup and it's great. Not humiliating. (laughs) No, no, no. Um, so let me get this straight. You actually have a system that runs from something as simple as a flip phone that is helping enable individuals all over the world to track their medical supplies. Correct. Yeah, that's the, the basics of it. Pretty impressive. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the inspiration for this idea. You were on a trip to Egypt to learn Arabic, yet you come out of that trip with this idea for an entire company. Can you fill in that gap for us? Sure. So a few years ago, when I was living in rural Egypt as an extension on this Arabic study trip, I had the opportunity to spend some time in a very small town and really get to know the place. And one evening, I went into the local pharmacy. While I was there, I happened to see that there were all these shelves of stocked out medications, things that were expired, lots of problems as it came to the inventory. Um, what I realized was that this clinic didn't have a computer or internet system to keep track of this stuff, but everybody in this town had a cell phone. Uh, and with my background as a computer programmer, I was actually able to realize that you could use even the basic flip phones to capture the type of information that would allow for these pharmacies to keep track of their inventory in order to, keep, uh, in order to avoid these problems. So now let's dig into that idea a little bit. because. It would just be absolutely incredible if you walked into this pharmacy and you're like, wow, you guys need help tracking, but you don't have computers. Obviously, the solution is a smartphone. (laughs) So how did you get from those two points? Yeah, I I mean, it definitely wasn't all everything at one moment. I would say... Not this epiphany eureka moment? Not not quite, not quite. Oh man, startups seem so much harder now. I know, yeah. It does does happen over time and it takes a little bit of thought and work, Um, but... I think for, for, for my case, I definitely recognized the scale of the problem. And that was, that was the first item of just seeing these shelves empty and realizing that this isn't quite right. Um, following that, you know, the observation around town that everybody had a cell phone, 
uh, I think it took me a little while, a little bit of research actually. I remember specifically looking into the technical capabilities of these basic phones and what you could do with the data functioning on it. And um, it was after that that I think I, I paused it, you know, not, not, not confidently, but that I uh, suggested that it might be possible to use the basic mobile phone to capture this type of data. And now was all of this kind of while you were in Egypt or is this an idea that you kind of brought home and then dug into? Uh, I, the, the fully fleshed out version of the idea definitely didn't, didn't come out for a few months and so after I was back. But I would say the initial concept of, hey, can we use phones to do something to capture information around this problem, uh, that was definitely uh, formed as I was coming out of Egypt. Interesting. Now, you had a really unique background that helped you quickly identify not only the need, but the scale of this actual situation around stocking and supplying medical supplies. What from your family history was like that connecting thing that helped you go, aha, this is a big problem? So I actually have a bit of a family background in medicine. My mother is a pharmacist and my father is a physician. Uh, so definitely grew up with uh, these types of fields around me and had an awareness of how systems worked and the different parts of what it means to provide care to somebody when they're sick. Wow. So in a weird kind of odd way, you're almost fit continuing the family tradition of being in the <laughs> medical space. <laughs> well, I definitely still haven't fulfilled my father's dream of me becoming a doctor, but if this is a way that I can do that, that at least uh, makes him... Uh, <laughs> makes keeps keeps him comfortable with with what I've chosen to do with my life. Then then I'll take it. <laughs> there you go. You know you might not quite be diagnosing, but you are helping doctors around the entire globe to better treat their patients with prescriptions that are not only like still good. You know they have the right ones on hands. I think that's kind of a fair trade off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can tell him that. All right. So you're in Egypt, you come back and you start kind of toying with this. What were some initial steps at the very beginning that you're like, I think this can be a viable business model? I think the initial step that I took was really around, okay, what are the different moving parts that need to be in place to make this happen? Uh, I realized that it was a technology that needed to be built out. Uh, using my background, I figured that most of the initial stuff is something that I could actually do myself. Um, so that was a good thing to kind of realize. And then the second part of that, really kind of figuring out what are the organizations that would be interested in this type of thing and, and, and really who could we reach out to uh, to get something like this piloted uh, and just up and running. So as far as building a pilot, what are some of the components to even get it off the ground? Because when you talk about the organizations who need this, these are probably not organizations who are super ex accepting for a college student with an idea to try and adopt something new. Absolutely. I would say that the vast majority of organizations that work in international development uh, tend to be very risk adverse. It's really hard to make a case for why they should take a chance on something new. Um, I think that we made a lot of uh, mistakes early on in, in how we reached out and talked to organizations, and uh, those were mistakes that I learned from. So who was the first organization to take a chance with you guys? Yeah, so the first organization that we worked with uh, is an NGO called Global Brigades. Awesome. And what inspired them to take this chance and really kind of move forward and implement your system? Well, uh, I definitely took a lot of initiative 
uh, to demonstrate that we were willing to be an engaged partner and we're willing to really take a look at their problems and, and do our best to help them. So, uh, in fact, the, the very first uh, step that I, I took after receiving uh, a, an initial positive response from them um, was a trip down to Honduras to actually view their clinics and meet their people and, uh, and understand what was going on on the ground. You know, for whoever made that first decision and said, yes, we will invest in you, the fact that you were willing to fly down there and show that commitment, I'm sure that was just so important for them. And it was just a sigh of relief of, yes, I have made the right decision. And this company was worth taking a chance on. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, you know, the way that I remember that very specific email that I got back, um, they had kind of left the door open to say, yeah, you know, we're interested in talking further. Let us know if, if, if there's time that you'd want to come down to Honduras possibly. And I basically immediately responded, yes, I'll be there in two weeks. Um, so, I am committed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I went down. I, I remember very specifically, I went down between um, Christmas and New Year's during my, uh, my school break. And uh, yeah, made it, made it happen. Now, for all these entrepreneurs that are listening in that are kind of getting started and they're reaching out to either partners or suppliers that haven't heard a yes, how many organizations did you have to reach out before you got that very kind of sort of tentative, we might explore this yes email? Oh, man. Um, I, I definitely lost count. I, I would say dozens. And in fact, this, this particular response was really a... A, a luck, a chance outlier uh, feedback because what I realized was that that email that the representative at Global Brigades had responded to was actually something I had sent three months prior. Three months. Uh, three months prior, yeah. So that one's like dead and gone almost. Exactly, exactly. And, and when I look at it in retrospect, it really was because I was formatting and sending these emails totally the wrong way. Uh, I mean, anybody who knows anything about uh, email marketing these, these days knows to keep it short and sweet. Um, I had done, I think, this huge blast to, uh, as I said, probably dozens, if not hundreds, of, of, of random people, organizations that I found online um, that included a big, long text message and a big attachment, all this stuff. It's the type of thing that I imagine most people just deleted without even looking at it. And I'm uh, sure there was some tech stuff in there, too, which everyone just loves reading about. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So what I realized was that in hindsight, uh, that was terrible. And, and I'd, I'd never try to do some kind of a marketing or outreach campaign like that again. Um, but, uh, you know, the fact that some poor guy at, at, at Global Reads or, or, or very compassionate, very interested guy actually did thoroughly read what, um, what we had to say and said, actually, wait, this is interesting. We should respond back. Um, definitely kind of came through as a break for us. So basically what I heard was your email was so long and detailed, it took him three months to read it. <laughs> that that might have been the case, yes. <laughs> so I really want to get into the specifics of how the program works. But before we do that, let's really make sure that we understand how the problem's laid out. So what we have are regional centers that have computers, that have data, and distribute the supplies to these rural areas. Where was the disconnect happening? Yeah, thanks for pointing that out. So really with our model, what you see is that there are warehouses in the capital cities that do have computers, internet, office spaces, administrative workers. The problem is that they don't know anything really about what the outlying clinics have in stock. So when that clinic 
um, which might not even be that far away, could even be in the capital city itself, when that clinic stocks out of a particular product, nobody back at that warehouse knows. And then all of a sudden we have, you know, pharmacies without supplies, things that are expired, just all sorts of challenges in providing some of this basic medical care that individuals desperately need in these communities. Exactly. So how does your system come in and work to bridge the gap of communication that's happening? So the, the basic premise behind our system is that it uses existing infrastructure. Um, so the idea of specifically using the phone call as a way to report this information is key because the vast majority of people in emerging markets in these countries, in fact, already have a phone. Uh, it's a statistic now that more people in sub-Saharan Africa, in fact, have a cell phone than access to a toilet. Um, so Whoa. think about, yeah, if you really think about the ubiquity of these phones, it's quite amazing, uh, really, that they're everywhere. They have access to a phone, but not a toilet. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. That is just mind-blowing. <laughs> yeah, but no, it's, it's, it's the truth. And, and you see it even in these rural, far-out communities that um, people have a phone, they have signal, um, and it, it's become a really important and integral part of life. So you have these individuals who have a phone and they're running these pharmacies. How do they get a da- the data of their supplies to the main office when all they have is that phone? So yeah, that, that's exactly where our system comes in. Um, with the automated calls that we place to the clinic, basically the worker will report their stock, their stock inventory using the numbers on the keypad. So it's as simple as a press five for customer service or a press six for Spanish type of interface. As soon as they punch in that number, 22 ibuprofen, 47 amoxicillin, that data gets updated in a cloud system, so on the internet, a system that can then be accessed from anywhere by their managers who could be hundreds, thousands of miles away to see what that clinic has and what they're running low on so they can hopefully be resupplied before they stock out. And then they rely on their existing infrastructure to ship all the supplies, everything's up to date. Now these clinics have the right type of medicines to serve their communities. Correct. This is pretty powerful stuff. (laughs) So... This is actually a business model. Can you kind of break down how that piece of it works? Absolutely, yeah. So from a business perspective, we work with those central operating distributors to provide them with the technology that they can then roll out in these individual centers. And they pay us on a subscription basis based on the number of those centers that we're monitoring for them. Now, earlier you talked a little bit about partnering with NGOs. Are NGOs the only type of clients that you have? No, actually. So we've recently expanded to working with a couple of government organizations. Um, so we actually ran a program last year in Uganda working with the Ministry of Health there. Um, and we've even started to do some commercial projects too where we're tracking things other than just health supplies. Ooh, do you elaborate? <laughs> um, yeah, so, so in fact right now we're running a program in Kenya uh, where we've been tracking Wrigley Gump. Uh, so looking at juicy fruit and double mint and how that's moving around the country and where it's available and where it's not. So all the way from something as important as Ebola medicine to juicy fruit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Really what we found is that the technology itself is applicable to a whole wide variety of products and uh, supply chains 
that all have a similar issue. What do you have on the horizon and what other type of markets do you anticipate expanding into as you grow? In terms of our short-term plans, we're definitely focused on expanding our current base of customers in the countries that we're already in. Uh, so we're currently in six countries, Honduras, Nicaragua, Panama, Kenya, Uganda, and the Philippines. Uh, and we want to continue growing those. Uh, in the medium term, we probably want to start to expand to more countries as well in those neighboring regions, um, and then potentially also start to explore these other new spaces um, where technology can be useful as well. Uh, one of the big things that comes to mind is the potential use for our system in agriculture, um, which is uh, another very, very big and important part of the economy um, in, in a lot of these countries. Really building a system around the resources and opportunities in the areas that you serve. Those are some comprehensive models. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Our, our goal here is to really become that go-to platform for tracking last mile supplies, regardless of the area, regardless of the product. Um, so we really do have a big vision for how we see the scaling. Definitely talking about a vision. You guys are growing rapidly, and you have actually recently started accepting investors, which you guys must be doing pretty well at because I was reading that you have $700,000 in investment seed money. Correct. That is a pretty substantial sum of money. <laughs> yeah, well, um, you know, certainly with the type of organization that we're looking to grow and scale into, uh, you know, resources are necessary to get to all these countries and to build out the teams necessary to support them. So, um, yeah, we're, we're very, very grateful to have the group of investors that we do and very glad to be executing on some of those goals that we set out. Now, one of the things I don't think we've actually brought up yet, and you would never know, but you are, in fact, in your very early 20s. Correct. <laughs> what is it like managing a company of this size and scale at such a young age? <laughs> um, I would say that I tend to not give it that much thought. Um, Probably you know, the best route. <laughs> yeah, no, no, mostly day to day. It's something that I just try to keep focused and, and do what I need to do as, as the CEO and, and founder of the company. Um, that being said, uh, you know, I'm not going to say that age hasn't been an issue. Um, there have certainly been uh, different advisors or potential investors, stuff like that, who have brought it up as, a, as an initial uh, point of concern. I think uh, really what that's done for me is uh, really driven me to make sure that I am confident, informed, knowledgeable about what we're doing um, so that I can allay any of those concerns that somebody might have about my age, meaning that I might not be the right person for this job. That must have been a unique growing spot for you to go, it's not just about my age, it's actually about the business model and the potential we have here. Because you do have something very tangible and very effective. Exactly, exactly. And you know that is what I want to talk about when, when I have conversations with these people. So to the extent that I can kind of demonstrate right away that I am somebody to be taken seriously and somebody who knows uh, what he's talking about, I think that's, that's uh, better for everybody. <laughs> you yourself are actually in very good company because there are several other very successful text moguls who not only started young, but like yourself, dropped out of college, such as Elizabeth Holmes of Theranos, Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook, and Bill Gates of Microsoft. Many people would love to be in that type of company. <laughs> <laughs> well, I definitely wouldn't put the cart before the horse there. Um, I think that right now we still have a lot of work to do and uh, that's 
basically the reason why I dropped out of school because I saw the opportunity to make something happen and uh, we still have to see where it goes ultimately. Now, as a student, what were some of the factors that helped you decide that, you know, balancing college and the startup just wasn't going to work and that you did make the decision to jump full force into Relief Watch? Great question. I would say that for me personally, looking at the opportunity to either stay in school or to pursue this idea, it certainly was not for certain what was going to happen. Um, and that's typical situation in life when you have two choices and one of them is particularly unknown. Uh, I think the way that I looked at it, and it's the way that I continue to look at things now, and it's, it's, it's definitely started to be well so far, is uh, really analyzing the two opportunities for what would honestly allow me to learn more. Um, and of course, everybody assumes that you're in school to learn. And I would say that my classes generally were interesting. I really liked being at the University of Chicago. Um, however, in the just the first few months of, of getting this business up and running, I had been learning so much and really felt as though I'd been pushed and challenged to grow as an individual and my skills and capabilities that I realized if I were to continue on this, I really could make something potentially happen. But even if it was a failure, I would have learned way more than I would have just staying in school. So I think that that realization, along with the fact that I really can go back to school at any time, uh, allowed me to kind of move forward with full confidence in making that decision. Almost a real life business degree, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. I hear the University of Chicago is actually very supportive of not only your decision, but also your business. Correct, yeah. So the University of Chicago was very supportive and allowed me to have a flexible leave schedule. They told me that I can go back anytime I want. Uh, they also provided me with free space to work out of and even most recently, an investment in our company from an innovation fund that they started. I think it was an understatement to say that they were supportive. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. They were very supportive. Um, and they obviously as well see the potential of what you're working on. Well, Daniel, with that, I think we're ready for some rapid fire. Let's go for it. The rapid fire is one of my all-time favorite parts of the show, and I think it's just because of those adventures we get to talk about, like shark diving. How many guests have we had that have gone shark diving? Absolutely incredible. But before we dive into that, I wanted to share a quick insight from this incredible event called Journey to Social Entrepreneurship, which was all about focusing in and channeling the power of service to fuel powerful social enterprises. So that insight was all about asking permission. Sometimes we wait too long to act, almost waiting for the world to give us the okay. K Tekka founder describes a pivotal moment in his journey where he could either move forward or ask permission. If you're at a point in your life where you're ready to activate and you're ready to move forward, then this event is for you. Unlock all 20 recordings at journeytosocialentrepreneurship.com slash live. That includes some incredible founders like Three Twins Ice Cream, Coolie Coolie, Sponsor Change, My Ed Match, and more. And with that, I think we're ready for a dose of adventure. Life is a balance of work, passion, and adventure. Can you tell us about a recent adventure or excursion you've gone on? Absolutely. So just a few months ago, I was on a business trip in the Philippines helping to get some stuff started there. And unbeknownst to me, I ended up in a high-speed police pursuit uh, where my taxi driver 
was trying to get away from the police for having run through a traffic stop. What? <laughs> That's I crazy. Just, I, I just thought that he was really excited to get us dropped off and go home. Just the efficient driver, right? Like, this exactly. man is going to get me there. Exactly. Oh, by the way, was that the cops? <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. It actually turns out that we were able to outrun them. He kind of turned off in some direction, and, and I thought we were just making a, a hard turn. But no, uh, he, he, he managed to shake them, and it wasn't until I got back to the hotel that uh, the other staff guy who was with actually explained the situation. <laughs> there we go. Interna international man of mystery outrunning police globally. <laughs> I'm sure yeah. that's what all of your NGO partners want to know. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't, don't tell them that. <laughs> so you are actually quite the man for adventure, you know, aside from outrunning the police. But in four hours, you're about to hop onto a plane to Spain. Correct. Yeah, I'll be out at a conference in Barcelona next week and then a few other places after that. Including like Kenya, France, London, Switzerland. I mean, you know, just all in a day's work, right? Yeah, well, more like a month's work, but yeah. <laughs> Many social entrepreneurs find solace and tranquility in the outdoors. How have you found this to be beneficial in your work and your life? Good question. I have actually really gotten into cycling recently. Um, mm -hmm. I've always enjoyed biking. And I live in the city. I live in Chicago. Um, but I have a, a pretty long bike to work. Um, where I get about an hour on the lakefront path going through the city every day. And uh, it's become one of my favorite activities. And I've been able to use it to be productive in other ways, too. Uh, obviously, it's my commute, but then also my exercise. And most recently, I've started listening to audiobooks as well. So I've, I've gotten really into uh, doing some learning in that time, too. I have been on that pathway in Chicago. Actually, on a bike. I rented a bike. It is absolutely stunning. Exactly. I do have one question for you, though. Mm -hmm. So I hear Chicago winters are a little bit cool. Uh -huh. How was how that working for you? It's I still I'm still out there. I, wow. What if you want to check me out? Usually around seven fifteen or so in the morning, you can you can find me blazing by. You're one of the only guys out there in the cold biking. It's actually I find it's 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 really nice in the winter because you're right. The paths are pretty clear of people, but but. I'd say that as long as you take the necessary precautions and covering the extremities, you're actually usually not that cold. You generate a lot of heat, you know, as you're, as you're going along. That's true. And what do you do for tires around like bite or around like ice and other things like that, you know, snow? Yeah, well, um, I would say kudos to the uh, Chicago Snow Removal Committee. Um, they do a good job of keeping the paths clear. So usually that's not a problem. All right. Well, next time I'm in Chicago, you know, hopefully not in the winter. Your summers <laughs> and your falls are a little bit prettier. I'll be out there at 7.15 looking for you. Sounds good. Can you describe a time when you were able to have boots on the ground and or see the need for your work in action? Yeah, just this past summer, I was in Nairobi where I was able to oversee the implementation of a couple of our new projects. Um, one of the, the, the biggest projects uh, Things that we're that we're tracking right now is distribution in in the slum of Kibera, um, which is one of the largest informal settlements um, in the world. And so to see products moving and data being captured in these places where there's really no data about them at all is is pretty amazing. Oh. What has been one of your biggest successes with Relief Watch? I would say that uh, hopefully our biggest success is is, is still to come, uh, but the 
the ability to actually reduce the stockouts and increase the overall availability of supplies um, has been tremendous. Just looking at one project in particular that we ran last year with the Uganda Ministry of Health, uh, where we were able to reduce stockouts by over 80%, um, seeing results like that is pretty fantastic. You got to love having a company around statistics and numbers, and you're able to have something as finute and pinpoint as we were able to increase efficiency by 80%. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. That is phenomenal. <laughs> we talked a little bit earlier, especially the startup life. There's these high moments where everything is going right, these low moments where you're struggling, and obviously challenges along the way. What has been one of your favorite mistakes? I think that I, well, looking back on it, the mistake that I mentioned earlier about those ridiculous emails that I sent. That took three uh, months to read. <laughs> took three months to read. Um, you know, I don't know if that would be a favorite mistake, but certainly something that I learned from. Uh, I think that really the mistakes in a startup's, uh, in a startup's life are, are, are made every day and you don't always realize them at the time. Uh, like I'm sure I didn't when I sent those emails. Um, but as you start to get a better understanding of what it is you're doing, as you start to get a better understanding of who your customers are, um, the different relationships that need to be formed, um, you actually do start to get a game plan together. And so I think for us, the biggest thing moving forward is how can we start to actually have these systems and processes that hopefully cut out on a lot of those mistakes and allow us to produce something that's ultimately scalable and can have an impact in achieving the vision that we want to achieve. One of my favorite things about your email story was how important it was just to start. Obviously, <laughs> we've discussed that, you know, especially the email marketer in me. Uh, there's some different, more effective ways to do emails, but yet there was so much power in just starting. And eventually someone, you know, three months later did read that and gave you guys a kind of sort of, yeah, we'll maybe think about it. So Exactly, exactly. <laughs> All right. While you're biking that incredible path along the Chicago shoreline, what is your favorite book that you've enjoyed recently? So the book that I enjoyed most recently was uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which is uh, a classic and, and definitely something worth checking out, especially for anybody interested in process and, and knowledge and understanding how that is actually applicable to you know, real world stuff like a motorcycle. <laughs> or, you know, if you're on a bike <laughs> and you exactly. need to exactly. systematically fix that bike because, <laughs> you know, you maybe caught a patch of ice in the winter. Yep. Uh, what role has mentorship played into your success? We've definitely had a, a, a group of really great mentors that individually have helped us through different stages of the company. Uh, I would say that early on having specific professors at the University of Chicago who we were able to work with to flesh out the business plan or different operational aspects of what we were trying to achieve, that was invaluable. Um, I think the most valuable business relationships that I found have come out of meaningful personal relationships. And so really finding somebody who you get along with, who you feel comfortable grabbing a drink with, uh, those types of attributes um, are ultimately what are gonna be most important for finding mentors that are gonna help you in growing out your idea. What advice do you have for other startup founders who are looking to find and create a type of mentor relationship where it's so casual, you can go and get a drink together. I would say just be open. 
be open, honest, and, and passionate about what it is that you're trying to do. Um, what I found is that people who share passions are more than willing to help each other. So to the extent that you're able to identify somebody who really does care about the same problem that you care about um, will allow you to build a meaningful relationship off of something um, that you have as a shared interest. People who shared passions will be more than willing to help each other out. So simple yet so profound. <laughs> It is. I mean, it's so true. You find people in life that are passionate about similar things and it just opens up opportunities. Absolutely. Daniel, what is your mantra or motto that guides forward your work with Relief Watch? Um, I would say my mantra, my model, at least, at least personally, is be biased to action. There so you go. What I mean by that is when you have an idea, just go do it. And you can sit in a room and think about it all you want, but until you actually get out there and do something about it, you never know what's going to happen. And you never know who's going to accept that email and say, yes, we're in. Exactly. What is one tip that our listener can do today to make a positive impact in their lives? I would say the most important thing that you can do is just do something in the community around you. So you don't need to focus on tackling a big global problem, just something as simple as cleaning up in your local garden or even volunteering to mentor a student at the local school is something that actually does make a huge impact to that person or to those people right around you and is worth doing to make ultimately a positive contribution to the world. Almost being biased towards positive action, right? Absolutely. I am I'm a very strong believer that you should think holistically in terms of how you make an impact. Um, it doesn't help the world if what you're doing in your work is something that's detrimental um, and then you on the side happen to do something else to try to make up for it. Ideally, those are things that should be aligned and you should be always striving towards having a positive impact with whatever it is that you're spending your time doing. I love that because actually when we did connect with Impact Engine, they talked about how it's not only in your life, but it's also with your investments and with your finance that you can take that same concept and Look for holistic ways to make a positive Absolutely. impact. Absolutely. Full circle right there. Well, Daniel, how do people learn more about Relief Watch? If you'd like to learn more about Relief Watch, feel free to go to our website, which is www.reliefwatch.com. All right. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Well, movers and shakers, I hope you're totally inspired by this innovative look at an incredibly powerful solution using technology as dumb as a flip phone and connecting it with something as powerful as a cloud-based system. Absolutely mind-blowing. For all of the resources mentioned today, including some compelling photos, head on over to our show notes page at positiveimpactpodcast.com slash reliefwatch. If you're looking to put your commute to work, whether by car or bicycle, and want to listen to audiobooks and really learn from the masters, then head on over to that show notes page, and we have two free audio downloads for you, so you can check out Zen, The Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, or any of the other great recommended books by our guests. Until next time, keep doing your part to make the world a better place. <laughs>